This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Brett Story. Just because this is the world as it appears to us, as we've landed in it, doesn't mean that it's unchangeable. And in fact, thinking about how we've produced the spaces that we inhabit is an important reminder that we can make them differently. We can produce them differently. We can live in a different and imagine and and make a different kind of spatial habitat for ourselves and for the species that we live with. Brett Story is an award-winning nonfiction filmmaker based in Toronto, whose films have screened at festivals and theaters internationally. She is the director of the award-winning feature documentaries, The Hottest August, and The Prison in Twelve Landscapes, both of which were also broadcast on PBS's Independent Lens. Brett holds a PhD in geography from the University of Toronto and is currently an assistant professor in the School of Image Arts at Ryerson University. She is the author of the book Prison Land, Mapping Carceral Power Across Neoliberal America, and her writing and criticism have been published widely. Brett was a 2016 Sundance Institute Art of Nonfiction Fellow and a 2018 Guggenheim Fellow in Film and Video. Well, Brett, thank you so much for joining us across this continent this morning, or my morning at least. It's really lovely to be connecting. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. So I want to just start off grounding listeners in the theories that underscore much of your work. So I'm wondering if you can offer an explanation of what critical geography is and explain why it's a necessary lens in a time where space and our understanding of it are rapidly changing because of climate change and globalization. Sure. Yeah. I mean, geography is a funny thing. When you say the word geography, I think a lot of people think maps, right? They think you're a person who, who, uh, who draws maps or looks at maps and that's certainly part of it. But for me, geography and particularly critical geography is really the social understanding of space. Um, it's a, it's a way of thinking about how human beings, us on the planet, produce space and are are in turn shaped by the spaces that we produce. So, you know, I'm sitting in a, I'm sitting in an office in a leafy neighborhood in Toronto. This city is a produced space by, it's produced by human activity, ideas, historical circumstances. This office is produced. I've decorated it in a particular way. I'm sitting in it um, because of, uh, you know, the, the, the things that have landed me here are particular to my history. Um, so it's a produced space and I make meaning out of it and it shapes the kinds of work that I can do. Um, for me, critical geography, which I came to sort of late. I mean, I didn't study geography in school until I was a graduate student. Um, but critical geography is really also a reminder that we have an impact on the world, um, which sounds both obvious, but also is, is really easy to forget. I mean, we, you know, the very fact that we're sort of born into a particular time and place, the world as it appears to us can feel almost like a, a given, like, you know, there, it could be no other way. And it's really useful to remind ourselves that no, just because this is the world as it appears to us, as we've landed in it, doesn't mean that it's unchangeable. And in fact, thinking about how we've produced the spaces that we inhabit is an important reminder that we can make them differently. We can produce them differently. We can live in a different and imagine and and make a different kind of 
spatial habitat for ourselves and for the species that we live with. And I think that that's really important for any kind of um, socially oriented, justice oriented activity um, or project, but certainly um, and most, you know, obviously I think it's, it's essential to thinking about the climate crisis because the climate crisis is itself produced by human beings and can be transformed um, by human beings and, and our, our, our activities. Yeah, thank you for defining some of those nuances for us. And I wanted to bring into the conversation your book, Prison Land, and you write, quote, the United States operates the largest archipelago of jails and penitentiaries in the world. And yet it can be hard to find the prison in today's landscape. Prisons are, after all, by design and definition, spaces of disappearance, they disappear or attempt to disappear the people inside them. And they are themselves increasingly disappeared from the dense social spaces where many of us live and move around. Prisons today are built far away from urban areas, often invisible from major thoroughfares, end quote. I'm really moved by the way you write. And I'm wondering how does this disappearing of landscapes weaponize land and our relationship to it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think the prison system is a great example of how thinking spatially about the world is also a way of thinking politically about it. Um, so among other things, we can think about prisons as a space. I mean, that's why, you know, I, I describe it as a, a space and I describe it as a space of disappearance, but taking it seriously as a space, right? It's a building, um, you know, uh, it's a, it's as a, as a mechanism of punishment, the very idea of the prison or the penitentiary was to take punishment, state punishment on the so-called criminal, um, uh, you know, the, the, the criminal or the criminalized person and take it out of the public sphere and, and trans transform it and move it to a new space, a space that would be hidden behind closed doors and high walls. Um, the penitentiary in American life is only 200 years old. Before, before penitentiaries, we didn't have incarceration as our main mechanism of criminal justice. We had you know, corporeal punishment, um, public floggings, things that happened in public space. And with the advent of the penitentiary, there was what we can describe as a spatial fix for the problem, um, the so-called problem of crime and criminality. So the idea was that you build this edifice, this building, and within it, a series of locked cellular structures and punishment itself would be one's removal from their life, one's removal from their home, their family, their neighborhood, and their relocation to this closed cell within the penitentiary space. And being reminded of the geography of the prison, I think is really useful in terms of thinking about uh, and rethinking the, the function of not just punishment, but also ideas of rehabilitation. So in the very early days of the American penitentiary, um, the notion was a rehabilitative one. It was actually Quakers and, and Enlightenment humanists who championed the idea of the penitentiary form because in their minds, these public corporeal punishments weren't actually having the desired effect, the supposed desired effect, which was to, you know, um, rehabilitate people or convince them to no longer do these these deeds that were were considered criminal and the hope or assumption was that there was that the isolation of the prison chamber would offer the criminalized person the requisite peace and quiet strangely enough to commune with themselves and with god and find the kind of requisite um transport transformation necessary to go back out into society. Now, this is a complicated history. That's one version of the narrative. Um, and it's the sort of reform version of the narrative, but that was certainly a part of it, right? The idea that actually you couldn't beat the criminal out of a person and instead you needed to give them sort of just a time out and a time away in order to, to, to you know, reflect. Um, 
<clears throat> now, prisons over the past 200 years have ceased really to have any kind of rehabilitative function, even if one imagined that they used to in the first place. And I think it's important to think about geography at a number of different scales. So one of the interesting things about penitentiaries as a space 200 years ago is that even though punishment was taken out of the public sphere and, and the, the punished person was, was relocated to these cells behind closed doors and high walls, the prisons themselves were located in urban areas. They, they tended to serve a kind of dual function. So on the one hand, punishment itself was rendered uh, less visible. It didn't happen in the, public, in, in, the, in the public sphere anymore, but people who resided in the city would constantly come up against the prison. So these prisons, um, their, their outside architecture would be very Gothic in presentation. There would often be gargoyles built on them. Um, you were meant to see the prison. There was a function of visibility that was also really important to how the prison functioned. You were supposed to see the prison and be reminded of what kind of consequence might be um, what might be consequent to one's actions if those actions were deemed uh, um, illegal or criminalized. And over the past 30, 40, 50 years, really with the advent of this era that we describe as mass incarceration, when prison rates have dramatically increased, not only in the United States, but elsewhere, we've seen a, a, an, another interesting geographic shift, which is that prisons are no longer really built in dense urban areas, and then they're instead built in, in, in deindustrial areas, rural areas, isolated areas. And I think that that's what I mean in this passage about disappearance. There's a way in which <clears throat> Prisons themselves were meant to disappear state punishment, so you no longer saw it and were confronted with it. it instead, happened behind these, these, um, these walls and these cellular structures. But prisons themselves are actually disappeared in that they're very geographically isolated. And it's important to ask questions about why that is. It's not. It's not an accident. It's historical. And I think that there's a few different ways of thinking about it. I mean, one way is just to think about the relationship between mass incarceration and deindustrialization. What are the towns and the communities that are becoming host to these penal institutions? But also, what kinds of invisibility are actually necessary for the project of mass incarceration to be so accepted? in a society, right? I mean, this is this is largely a, a, a wild experiment. This is what else I say in this passage, you know, no other country in the history of the world has locked up so many human beings and for such long periods of time. And it just seems to me that there is a relationship between that fact that we do that to human beings um, without any kind of real um, you know, advantage in terms of safety or decreases in, in violence as a society. Um, and the fact that those places of punishment are increasingly invisible, right? So we're not confronting every day the visible fact of the incarceration of so many human beings. Um, and in fact, that, it, that, that project, that project of, that I describe as a project of state violence is hidden um, in, in lots and lots of different ways. And it's certainly just hidden geographically in that, you know, those of us who are not incarcerated are not seeing spaces of incarceration in our daily lives. Um, and that's that's a political problem in terms of our, our ability to, um, to be faced and confronted with the horrors that might be happening and that we know are happening inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really fascinating in a disturbing way to consider what our fantasy of prisons are and what they're actually doing. Mm -hmm. And I think there has been so much cultural conditioning around this false security that prisons offer society. And it just seems like so much of the supposed security we have, at least in the United States, is based on a false stability predicated on control of crime and also of nature and the climate. So I, I'm wondering, what does this need for control suggest about society 
And how might your films, The Hottest August and The Prison in 12 Landscapes engage with anxieties around the lack of control regular people have over these issues? I think that's a great, I think that that's a great question because I think we can think about the idea of anxiety on a, a number of different levels, right? I think we can and we should think about who who's anxious and about what. <laughs> and I think, um, I think, you know, we can differentiate between the anxieties of those who are profiting from a social order that's predicated on so much exploitation and inequality and oppression. Um, and then the anxieties of ordinary everyday people that are um, sort of satisfied, um, or eased under sort of false uh, pretenses. And I think, I think your use of the word, word fantasy is a really important one, because I do think that there are lots of very good reasons to feel anxious every day. I mean, we're doing this interview um, on, on May 25th, you know, I've spent the morning reading about gun violence uh, against school children in Texas. It's, it's, I have a three-year-old. It's absolutely devastating to wake up in the morning and think about the, the kinds of violence that are every day inflicted on, um, on, on our friends and our neighbors um, needlessly, right? And so the question is, what do we do with our anxiety? And what are the ways in which the anxieties of those that might profit from a given social order that itself contains so much in instability, um, how, what are the mechanisms by which those anxieties get transformed into what, what some geographers, for example, like David Harvey and Ruth Wilson Gilmore call um, uh, a social or spatial fix. So prisons are an, exa an example, in Ruth Wilson Gilmer's words, of a spatial fix. And they're a fix for a number of different kinds of crises. They're the crises that are really endemic to, um, to, to neoliberal capitalism, um, a capitalism that requires and enshrines racialized inequality at a variety of scales. Um, the instability and crises of many, many people living you know, uh, paycheck to paycheck, who are faced with the possibilities of unclean um, and, and, and contaminated water to drink, the criminalization, their criminalization for not paying their water bills. This is something that I explore in, in, um, in one of the chapters in the book when I'm looking at um, the role of police and, and prisons in, this, in the state of Michigan and the city of Detroit, where um, the summer I was doing field work there, um, the city was in the grips of a housing crisis and there were huge um, water shutoffs and individual families were being criminalized for supposedly, you know, stealing water because they were trying to bathe their their kids and and have water to drink. So there's all sorts of instability and crises that's already inscribed in the in the in the very rules of capitalist economics, right? And economics that requires some people to make endless amounts of profit from um, the resources of um, of the earth and as quickly as possible, not in a sustainable way, but in an unsustainable way. Um, and then also um, requires the exploitation of human beings. So one way in which um, we can theorize and think about um, the role of the criminal legal system is as a way of producing a class of people, a, a class of people that we come to know as criminalized people, people who come out of the prison system with criminal records. This becomes a kind of class of people that um, like many other classes of, of, of people like, you know, so-called undocumented migrants, um, other, other people that are, that are um, you know, denigrated and dehumanized in the popular imagination, um, whose who's, um, who's status on, is on the low, lowest rungs of the social order is considered somehow natural, right? Um, so, somehow inevitable, somehow their fault, rather than actually produced by the 
the inequities of the capitalist system. So, I mean, I think that, I think that, yeah, we can think about the prison system and we should think about the prison system, not so much as a product of um, a criminal justice system or product of crime and criminality, but actually as a manifestation of the anxieties of a capitalist state and a capitalist class who need and require to continue, you know, um, activities of exploitation um, that produce inequality and and produce the instabilities that are intended to inequality. I mean, I think inequality is unstable because human beings want and know injustice in their hearts. They know and want that it's not right to um, commodify water, to contaminate water, to um, criminalize people for trying to feed their families, um, to treat some people as less than human and some people as more than human. And I think the natural instinct of most people in the face of injustice, in the face of gross amounts of inequality, is to stand up for themselves. I mean, I think that's why we we live in a world of um, ongoing social movements as well. And the function of a of a one function of the criminal legal system and the prison industrial complex is, in fact, to um, to legitimize state um, violence and control, social control on a particular class of people. And, you know, I, you know, I could go, I could go on about this, but I think that the last thing I should say is just um, that there's a way in which living in the era of the climate crises is it's, is like living and breathing anxiety every day. I don't know if this is how you feel, but it's certainly how I feel. Right. And I'm, I'm raising a daughter in this world and imagining like, how do we think about how do we how do we imagine living in this world when the future itself feels unstable um even unlikely sometimes how does that how does the anxiety of that of, of you know reconciling ourselves to that what does it produce and i think it can we can choose to let it lead us in a few different directions certainly the anxieties of living in such a world can produce the desire to blame some people and not others i think that that's why some narratives and vocabularies that um that have us you know demonizing some people or saying you know you're it's this group of people that are at fault or it's this group of people that are that are taking all the resources that's why they can have such traction in anxious times but i think and hope that we can also translate our anxieties into a commitment to live in a in different ways and to band together to find our power from different from different sources um and i think that that's why in anxious times you also see a resurgence in in all kinds of social movements and social coalitions including coalitions between prisoner rights advocates and climate um climate crisis advocates and activists so much there in your response and there's this thought that's coming up for me around just in the individualized realities of a neoliberal world I'm wondering how current conversations around crime and climate change place emphasis 
on controlling the individual's actions mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, how much pressure can we really put on the individual? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. There's a, there's a, um, an anthropologist who I like, um, uh, Alan Feldman, who described arrest, you know, like police arrest once as the art of individualizing disorder. And I have often thought about that, not just in the realm of, again, the criminal legal system, but in all walks of life. So a few years ago, um, I made this film, The Hottest August, which, you know, the, the log line of the film is um, uh, uh, um, a film about climate change, just uh, a film about climate change disguised as a portrait of collective anxiety. And um I set out to just explore the city of New York over the course of one month, not to offer a kind of take on the question, does climate change exist or does it not change? Is it, is it terrible or is it not so terrible? Because I feel like those questions have already been answered, but rather to explore this question you're asking of how we live and metabolize our own anxieties and how those anxieties interact with the narratives that are um, dominant in our world, you know, that come to us through our media and our politicians and, and so on. And I set out to really, you know, ask a very honest question, which is, I feel like a fundamental question, one that I still ask every day, which is how, how is it that we can continue to sort of slow walk our way into our own extinction? Like, why is does it seem like climate, the climate crisis is failing to produce action on a, on a mass level? And I think this, this problem of individualization is really at the heart of it. So one of the things I did in this film was I just, um, I just engaged in a series of kind of spontaneous conversations with people. I didn't even bring up the climate crisis. I would, you know, tap people on the shoulder and I'd say, hi, I'm making this film. It's made up of a, of just conversations with ordinary people in public space. And I'm wondering how you're doing, what you're thinking about, um, how you're thinking about the future. And a couple of things surprised me. One is that I think I expected people to express a lot of negativity and cynicism about the future, you know, to say kind of explicitly, oh God, I feel terrible. Things are really bad. Um, and instead, I what I encountered often was a kind of dual move where someone would say, oh yeah, I'm having a really hard week. You know, I served an eviction notice and I need to find a new place to live and I can't afford a new place to live or I'm dealing with this trouble or that trouble with my employer, all sorts of ordinary, um, but very common, um, you know, struggles, um, especially for those living in an expensive city. Um, but in the, in the, almost the the next breath, they would say, but it's going to be fine next week. It's going to be fine. I'm going to get a little bit of luck. I'm going to make the right decision. I'm going to turn things around for myself. And almost always they sort of projected their own, um, optimism about how things would go in totally individual terms. You know, I will make a better decision. I will, a good thing will happen to me. I will be lucky in this way. And there was a kind of, for me anyways, a feeling of real tragedy in that um, because it, it rhymed and it resonated with this other narrative that I kept encountering. I mean, and and I, I was making this film in the summer of 2017, Trump was in office um, there was a lot, I mean, there still is, but there was certainly then a lot of, um, of racist, um, you know, immigrant scapegoating, talk about hordes of migrants at the border. Um, this was also the summer of the um, racist white supremacist attack in Charlottesville. And on occasion, I would also get people talking about how, you know, <clears throat> certain people were stealing jobs or certain people were, were, were getting all the resources. And it it seemed to me, and it still does that, you know, when we're afraid as there's every reason to be, there's lots of reasons to be afraid, but when we're afraid and yet, and at the same time convinced by all the kind of dominant narratives that the world is just composed of individuals, maybe acting you know, within families, that those are the only units that matter. Um, then you, then the sort of, um, all one's left with is the, is the feeling that like, 
that either things are totally hopeless or that the only hope that might be possible for them is to decide how how they as an individual are going to you know get what they need and everyone else be damned and i think that um i think that that tragedy is especially clear in the era of the climate crises because I mean, if there's anything that tells us that there's no future in aloneness, it's the specter of planetary collapse, right? It is the very notion of ecosystem. It's the very notion of planetary interdependence. That's we live on a planet. We are dependent on the on the trees. The trees are dependent on the birds. The birds are dependent on the insects. Like it all goes round. We know that. Um, and certainly people are interdependent within each you know on each other um in and there's just no individual way of getting out of this crisis the crisis is too large um and in fact individuality i'd argue is what got us into the crisis is the individual desire for for profit um for exploitation at all costs an inability to think sustainably about intergenerationality you know a desire to to of some to plunder the earth's resources for their own gain that's the opposite of um thinking uh through the lens of of belonging to an ecosystem and i'd argue that the idea of society is a way of thinking about ecosystem right um margaret thatcher the the famous british prime minister who you know was contemporaries with ronald reagan um in the 80s and considered the sort of one of the main architects of a kind of like era of neoliberalism. She's very famous for saying um, this thing, which was, there's no such thing as society. There's only individuals and their families. And the reason she said that was because she was um, engaged in a fulsome attack on all sorts of public resources, public housing, um, nationalized industry, unions, all these societal forms that had at their basis the idea of people taking care of each other, there being such a thing as a public, there being such a thing as a union, as a, as a social formation. And she was attacking those institutions um, in order to privatize all these resources. And along with that project was the necessity of convincing people that not to believe in such a thing as society, only to believe in the in the individual. And I think that that is, you know, hearing hearing all these people over the course of this one month in in New York want to be optimistic about the future, but have no other vocabulary for being optimistic other than the hope or desire or fantasy that they, as an individual, will somehow be the lucky one that gets through. Um, I found and still find very devastating um, as I, I really do believe there's, you know, there's a, what's been lost is the commons, not just as a way of thinking about resources, but also a way of thinking about how we belong to each other. Mm, that's really beautiful how we belong to each other. Yeah, I think that that sentiment has definitely been lost on many of us because of the divisiveness of our conditioning of the media. Yeah, I feel like it's very much by design that we feel like we don't belong to each other. And mm. yeah, it's like a divide and conquer tactic to uh, think for those who have power to stay in power and to centralize that power for themselves. And yeah. Yeah. And can I just say, you know, I think that this is why I think it's really important to think about these things that often get treated separate, like the climate crisis and the and mass incarceration together, because actually, when you think about, okay, how are people divided? What are the actual mechanisms? What is the actual work being done to describe and carve out, you know, the idea of difference and the idea that there are some people that are deserving and some people that are not deserving. Well, I think that the, the language of criminality is actually one of the most powerful mechanisms for that, you know, because it's so naturalized, you know, even I, you know, I imagine your listeners hearing me and thinking, well, yeah, if someone's a criminal, <laughs> if someone's done a criminal act, they, they are a different, 
you know, in a different category, they are less deserving. But I think we should, I think it's so important to be critical of that. I mean, especially when we recognize certain things about how the criminal justice system works, right? When we recognize the fact that the majority of people inside prisons and jails are poor people, right? When we think about how the degree to which people of color and African-Americans are hyper-incarcerated, um, and think about this overlap between criminality, the crim crim mechanisms of criminalization and mechanisms of racialization. And we think about just sort of the, the you know, that as one among many other kinds of projects um, in which we as a society are somehow convinced that there are people that are deserving and, and undeserving. And what does it, you know, what gets, what, what kinds of harm get naturalized as being acceptable when you make those kinds of demarcations. And, and even though it's really challenging for people to say, to, you know, recognize, I mean, not even just through the lens of innocence and, and, and guilty, not just to say, oh, there's lots of people inside prisons and, and jails who are, who are innocent to even let go of that binary and say, even people who did the thing that got them criminalized, you know, maybe stole something. Well, you know, who else is stealing all the time? Employers are stealing all the time. You could argue that, you know, mining companies are stealing all the time. And yet that's not um, rendered illegal. Um, but stealing something from a grocery store to feed your kid is. And so we have this mechanism that is in some ways, you know, if we look at it sideways, we can see it as both sort of arbitrary, but also, um, also historically produced um, in and, um, and, and functional functioning to uphold systems of inequality um, and I think that if we task ourselves with, with actually trying to think capaciously about how those mechanisms of division and demarcation work and try and unthink them, you know, again, like it's so arbitrary to decide that there's, you know, there's, you know, there's such a thing as a, as a, as an, um, illegal migrant and a legal migrant or an undocumented migrant and, a, you know, What's the difference between an expat and a and an immigrant? And yet we 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 hold these distinctions as if they're as if they're natural, um, rather than again socially produced and um, and necessary to break down. Mm -hmm. I'm so with you, especially in terms of what is stealing the mining companies or the Enrons or the corporations. They're stealing all the time or they're getting major fines for polluting and never paying and they're completely able to destroy the earth and human communities without any consequences mm. which is so much more massive than somebody going into a convenience store and even stealing something that seems big Mm. or going into a department store and stealing even thousands of dollars. Mm. I mean, that's nothing in comparison to what is being stolen from the earth and from communities every day, wage slavery. I mean, like the list goes on and on and on. It's actually something- Intellectual property, right? Patents. Right. Like, yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, how do we not think about like the fact that the vaccine patents are held by private companies, mm. you know, even while public money, which is to say our tax dollars, uh, you know, underwrote um, all that science, right? Like what is that if not theft? Um, wow, but yet in the public imaginary, it doesn't get considered that that way because mm -hmm. theft, the idea of theft is reserved for individual action, usually by by poor people. And right. I think that that's precisely why we need to turn these narratives on their head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the social constructs are really, oh, they can, yeah, I can really get frustrated with that. But thank you for speaking to that because I think that clarity is so important for us to just remember how much this isn't truth. So much of what we are told is true or real or ethical is constructed by those who want to have power and money and control and all of that stuff. But I, I'd like to turn to focus specifically on your film, The Prison in 12 Landscapes. And you explained that 
you make abolitionist media and in making an abolitionist documentary, you commit to abolishing crime stories. Hmm. So I, I'd love if you can give us some insight into what that looks like. Yeah. So, well, maybe I'll start by describing the film a little bit. Um, so the, the conceit of that film is that it's a film about the prison system in which you never see a prison And instead, the film takes place through and across 12 discrete places um, in which, you know, the audience is sort of tasked with figuring out how is this, how is the prison in this space, right? The the title says it all. There's a prison in 12 landscapes and you're landed in this place that is not a penitentiary or a jail and asked, like, how is the prison functioning in this place? And the project... Um, I mean, the, the idea came from uh, a lot of thinking and activism around um, the, the contemporary criminal legal system and the, the prison industrial complex, and was informed by the work of a lot of prison abolitionists who, among other things, ask us and invite us to think about the prison as a system, right? The prison again, not just as a a building or an edifice over there, but as a system, um, an institution, a public institution that um, is very much tied up with all sorts of other systems and institutions. And, um, And that's a sort of interesting challenge for someone who's working like I am in a visual media. I'm a filmmaker, I, I work through images. And so I was interested in a couple of things. I was interested in, on the one hand, in just uh, the fact that I don't find a lot of prison documentaries to be all that um, surprising or compelling. I mean, I think that there's some really powerful, you know, prison documentaries that showcase the plight of a of, a, of an individual who's um, facing an injustice of some kind. They're often innocence narratives. Um, and they're they can be absolutely devastating and heart wrenching and are important in that way, but there there's a kind of sameness to a lot of prison documentaries that I've found frustrating over the years, and part of it is that I've questioned the amount of work they can do even when they have really good sort of social justice convictions, um, because they they tend to again sort of showcase the system gone wrong, but don't help us make a you know, don't really help us understand why the system functions the way it does in the first place. So you get a lot of kind of bad apple um, takeaways from these these films. Like it was a bad prosecutor, or it was a bad cops, that they misused the evidence and the wrong person landed in jail. And so I, I tasked myself with making a film, not only in which we wouldn't see a prison, because I wanted again to think about the prison, not as a building, but as a system, um, uh, that organizes is you know is very is 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 implicated in how like the entire social structure of America is organized, but also a, a film about the prison system in which we wouldn't talk about crime you know and if we talk about crime at all it's to put crime in quotations and this this very much relates to you know the the conversation we were just having in which actually if you think about it carefully as as sort of naturalized as the language of crime sounds, like, of course, murder is a crime. Of course, rape is a crime. They're bad things. How else would we recognize them as a society as bad things? Actual crime as a sort of social legal construct is very, um, is not just socially produced, but is, is, is very particular, right? There are things that get called crimes and there are things that are not called crimes. There are things that used to be called crimes, but are no longer called crimes. You know, uh, interracial marriage used to be called a crime. It's no longer called a crime in most places. Um, you know, uh, 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 sex between um, consenting adults of the same sex used to be called a crime. It's no longer called a crime. So there's lots of ways and reasons that we can put the idea of crime in quotations in order to suggest that it's a malleable construct, um, that it is as much to do with rules of the social order as it is anything else, but also to think about um, how it can be very misleading in terms of this basic question of asking, again, why do we put, why do we think taking people away from their homes and communities and putting them inside cells for long periods of time is going to help us 
solve endemic issues of harm and violence in society? And also, how does it reify or, or calcify ideas of what counts as harm and violence and what doesn't count as harm and violence? So I wanted to do two things. I wanted to make a film about the prison system in which we never saw a prison, and I wanted to make a film about the prison system in which we didn't talk about crime. And, um, and I think that that's what I what I try and do, because, you know, I think that as you explore the film, you know, we start in the film, we start on a bus. Um, it looks like an ordinary bus. It's a night bus. Um, and we discover it's taking a, 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 a group of mostly women of color to um, a prison far away to visit their loved ones. We start there. We um, spend some time in the suburbs of St. Louis, where people are um, in a long lineup paying um, you know, fines for sort of ridiculous poverty ordinances, like not putting their trash can lids on correctly, and then landing in jail when they can't pay their fines because they're low wage workers, um, to uh, 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 the coal fields of Appalachia, where there's a building spree right now of penitentiaries, many of them being built on top of decommissioned coal mines, um, as the economy of central Appalachia is transformed from a coal economy to bright new future in prisons. Um, and so the themes that emerge are not actually about crime and violence and criminality um, and innocence and guilt, but are about um, things that are just really fundamental to the organization of everyday life, like jobs. You know, what we discover in, in Appalachia is that not only are prisons being built on top of decommissioned coal mines, but the reason that most people in these towns want a prison to come to their towns is because they're unemployed and they're being promised good jobs as prison guards. Often those, those desires are going unfulfilled. Those promises are going unfulfilled. Those jobs aren't actually good paying jobs. But the again, talk about anxiety and about fantasy. The fantasy that there could be another... Um, there could be a future for them and their families has been hitched to the promise of a, of a carceral building spree. And so the, the, the hope in like, you know, constructing a prison film made out of scenes like that is that we're actually better equipped to have an abolitionist imagination because abolition isn't just about, or even very much about just, um, you know, uh, closing down these spaces of confinement, but it's about, reimagining what's possible, what kind of what kinds of things that we can can we build. If we understand how prisons function, what they're actually do, what they're there to fix, then we're better equipped to imagine alternatives to them. So if we understand that prisons are being built in Appalachia as a as a job creation strategy for unemployed coal miners, then actually the abolitionist uh, alternative becomes not that hard, right? It's just don't build broad prisons, build something else that will give people good jobs, right? It could be wind farms. It could be sol solar panel, panel factories. It could be, you know, wonderful like national parks and everyone gets trained as, as park rangers. There, are, It could be um, not jobs at all. It could be like a more robust, um, you know, social social wage and free, free daycare and free schools so that people don't have to uh, just sell their labor all the time in order to pay their bills. So there's just lots and lots of ways to imagine possibility um, in these places where prisons are being built if we understand what prisons are actually about in the first place. And so long as we're sort of um, unable to think past this narrative that prisons exist because we're all in imminent danger and because the world is rife with interpersonal violence and harm and bad people, the only thing we can do with bad people is put them in jails. As, as, as long as we're sort of tied and married to that narrative, then we can't imagine alternatives. And we have to, I mean, the, the hope for that film is that it would de, um, de, de center that narrative from our imagination of what prisons um, are even about um, where else we can see carceral logics operating and what alternatives we might imagine for these landscapes.
the stakes get higher I've got the capitalist blues When I give everything I won't have much more to I'm sitting with all of this and mm, there's so many questions that I have so many threads that I want to pull on, but I'm like, okay, focus, focus. <laughs> um, well, in all of your documentary work, I love that you commit to telling stories from the quote factory floor. And I wonder how might this work to counter the idea that these crises are purely intellectual and rhetorical, but they're rather deeply personal. And I'm wondering how might this even work to fight the misanthropic feelings that often emerge when people talk about climate change? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I'll say I'll I'll speak personally. You know, I I've been I've been involved in activism in one way or another, often like poorly. I'm not a very good organizer, actually. There's there are people that are much better activists than me, um, but I've been at least you know uh, proximate to social movements since I was a teenager, and I think it's important to admit that I that there's that I do that not just out of principle and out of belief, but also as a way of fighting my own misanthropy, you know, as you say, it's a way, it's an antidepressant for me. Um, because there are, is so much reason in this world. I mean, like I said, this morning, the news is devastating. Um, there is so much reason to feel despair and hopeless. The, the stories of suffering are unending, they're unending. You know, I have a three-year-old daughter. We'll watch, we'll watch um, Blue Planet and and look at all of these amazing species. And I think about like the world in which we humans are just needlessly um, rendering them extinct by making their um, by making the the oceans inhabit you know inhabitable. And and it it makes me hate myself. It makes me hate humans. It makes me you know want to give into this narrative that like actually maybe the best thing that the world you know that could happen to the world is if humans just cease to exist and I think it's really important to fight that because that that kind of nihilism just produces more violence um and the fact is that we do live on this world and we have to we you know we're living here we have to we have to continue living here and um and the fact that we were capable of producing this mess means that we're capable of, of producing something else. And that gives me faith. And for me, the reason to be, um, to stay close to social movements. And I, I have certainly found this, especially actually in, um, movements for, for prisoner rights, um, is that, um, there's such an important reminder that People are intolerant of injustice and people will make enormous sacrifice for them for, for themselves and for each other to live in a better way. I mean, the, the prisoner rights movement in the United States is not filled with intellectuals and armchair activists. It's led by mothers. It's led by women. It's led by people who are tasked with doing care work all the time the you know I spent a lot of time with people who um, again mostly women who take these long bus rides from New York City to the something like 54 penitentiaries that are located in remote areas upstate New York and they'll take these long bus rides for 10 12 14 hours not sleeping all night even you know women in their 70s and their 80s mothers with young children will take these rides and one of the things i heard over and over again from many of these women was i you know i'm my i'm my son's only visitor i'm my brother's only visitor you know i need to show those guards that this person is loved 
you know, if that, if, if the guard knows that this person is loved, they'll bother him less. So they see their work as like the work of keeping their loved ones alive. And that is an important form of activism. And they're the ones who have been on the forefront of, of actually, you know, doing the organizing work of, um, of trying to get their loved ones free and, and being close to that kind of freedom struggle. I mean, it's, it's intoxicating in its, um, and it's like antidote to all to mis- misanthropy. It's like it's like the opposite of waking up in the in the morning and reading the news about how horrible human beings are to each other and to the planet. It's like tremendous what people will do for each other, right? Um, I'm making I'm, I'm making a film right now following the um, a small group of workers who's been um, working at the uh, an Amazon fulfillment center in Staten Island. And I've been following them for about 14 months as they, you know, this is a group of five, six, seven people who are doing 10 and 12 hour shifts in a warehouse day in and day and night. And they've been organizing for an entire year to try and start a union. And in April, they were successful. They formed the very first unionized workplace of an Amazon facility in all of America. And they did that while everybody around them told them they couldn't, you know, nobody believed in them no politicians, no other organized unions. Um, And they did it, you know, because what else could they do? They understood that their things were fucked up. They understood that it's not okay for the company not to let them take time off when they're showing symptoms of COVID during a pandemic in which people are dying. They understood that they deserve better. And so even while there's all this all this reason to be cynical about how selfish people can be and how willing people seem to be to hurt each other and to try and get ahead i think that there's just as much evidence and actually if we if we know how to look for it much more evidence of how 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 um unstoppable people are in their quest to feel dignity for themselves and to um, live a livable life. And I think that that's kind of what's at the crux of all of these struggles, the the struggle for the climate crises, the struggle for labor rights, the struggle for prisoner rights, is an understanding that, um, that that life as it is, is unbearable and unlivable. Um, And that the only way to create the conditions for a livable life, a life where people can take care of each other, can touch each other, can feed themselves, can be well, um, requires people banding together in struggle. And that for me is, is not just good work for intellectual reasons, but it's good work for spiritual reasons. It's the only way I wake up in the morning and feel okay about the day is to remind myself and to stay close to, to the people that are doing that work. Um, because it, it can seem like it's against all odds, right? Again, it can seem almost unreasonable at times, but the, it's the fact of, it's the evidence of ordinary people dealing with tremendous adversity who are doing this work that um, offers the reminder that, that the work is, is necessary and can be successful. That's the other lesson of history. That's the other lesson of geography, of understanding how people produce space, you know, Rosa Parks on the bus, the bus is a, a produced space. And when she refused to get up, she's changing the meaning of that space um, and changing history. Such a beautiful response. Thank you for that. Hmm. In Prison Land, you write, quote, the most salient organizing features of the prison regime as found in Detroit's downtown real estate corridor in eastern Kentucky's impoverished coal fields, for example, have to do with property, wage, labor, and race. It is through the production and cognition of those social relations rather than any overwhelming drive to punish that the carceral order is reproduced end quote and I'm wondering how does structuring the world according to the strict lines of private property wage labor and race in turn structures bodies born into that world and how do we reproduce these values as selves within these systems 
Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's very challenging, right? It's, it's like, how do you contest the things that are actually, that are, that are actually the law of the land, you know, it's like one thing to remind ourselves, oh, this is socially produced, race is socially produced, private property is socially produced. It's another thing to actually challenge it because it's, it's how the world goes around. I mean, something I, I you know, I work in documentary, so I, and I, I teach, so I'm often talking to my students about, you know, what is reality? What is truth? How do we represent it? And one of the examples I use as a sort of example, a benign example of how things are socially produced and real at the same time is the idea of six o'clock. So it's like, what is six o'clock? <laughs> is it primordial? Is it, um, is it natural? Is it inevitable? No, it's, it's made by human beings. It's a, it's a part of a, a social clock, you know, um, that's given meaning by the working day. And yet, even though it's socially constructed, we can't just individually decide we're going to live without it. I'm not going to just individually say like, okay, six o'clock, it's meaningless to me. I'm going to live without, you know, without time. And I think the same is true for much less benign social constructions like race and private property and even wage labor, right? So wage labor, what does that mean? It means it's not just like work, you know, activity, toil on the land, but it's the parceling out of, um, the activity of the human body into time parcels that become sellable. You know, I'm, I, my, my toil is um, available for a wage of X amount, depending on my status within the social system. Oh, it's, you know, I'm only worth $15 an hour or my labor is worth $200 an hour, depending on what college I went to, depending on how I'm socially perceived, depending on what I'm wearing. So, you know, it's very, I think it's individually very hard to challenge these constructions because they do, they are just part of how the world works. Um, but I think it's really, I think it's really important to be radical with our demands, you know, and I think that this is the other thing that I've learned from my time in the prison abolition movement is that one can be practical and utopian in one's demands at the same time. So one can be part of a labor campaign for an increased um, minimum wage. Say it's not, it's, it, one can't live, one can't feed their family on $12 an hour. One needs $20 an hour. One can fight for an increased minimum wage and also make them the important and radical demand that we not have to sell our labor in order to be able to be alive, you know, that <clears throat> debt should be abolished, that schools should be free, that um, housing should be free, that good food be available. Um, you know, those are, you know, uh, those are ways of, of both sort of recognizing that wage labor organizes the world and we need to press upon its limits in order to make life more livable for a lot of people, but also at the same time recognize because it's a social construct that upholds a, a, a social order predicated on, on inequality, um, inequality that's often enshrined in racial terms, we should and, and can demand more because again, there's no reason that um, we should have to live in a world in which you sell your labor power in order to buy the commodities that are necessary to live. You know, um, imagine if, you know, imagine if you didn't have to pay rent, you know, what, what might be possible? Um, housing should be free. It's a, it's a human right. And I think that that's, yeah, I think that that we can sort of apply that thinking to, to all sorts of things, um, including, yeah, again, private property. I mean, I think it's, I think it's I think it's been really inspiring over the past few years to see young people have um, a kind of, a, you know, an imagination, a utopian imagination to say things like to be able to imagine things like defunding the police. Right. Because that's not just a project in like canceling something like no no police. It's also a, a project in in recognizing that the resources that go to paying for the police are part of the what's called the social wage or you know the, the the public commons those are our resources we paid we pay municipal um 
budgets out of our tax money and exploitation of, of, of um, resources that should be understood as belonging socially to all of us. And if they're not used to fund police, then they could be used for something else. Like again, free schools, free transit, free breakfast programs, things that make life livable. Um, and I think that part, as part of those demands, I've, especially in the past few years, heard a lot of young people who are involved in, in movements really decry the privatization of all commodities and say, no, these things shouldn't be, shouldn't be privatized. You know, um, they should be, you know, resources should be re resources should be held in common and once they're held in common i mean again this is what we learn this is what we learn from indigenous communities and and um and uh historical um colonized people who uh, who saw their resources stolen from them is that when resources are understood as belonging in common then it also enables um, a relationship to them of care and of stewardship. Um, and that's a different way of, of thinking about our relationship to um, a good. I mean, I think that the other function of private property isn't just to say this belongs to you and, and can be policed accordingly, but it also defines the type of relationship one has to that resource. You know, I think I think it's not it's it's not a coincidence that resources need to be privatized in order to be fully exploited in the capitalist sense. And that's why we have this um, crises of uh, fossil fuels and, um, uh, and, and uh, uh, contamination and pollution. Um, if, we, if we didn't have that kind of relationship, if we said, you know, this, we don't have a property relationship to these resources, we have a uh, a relationship of care and of stewardship, then it would enable a different way of thinking about um, how those resources are to be used and to be adjudicated, um, not just across geography, but also across time, which of course is essential to thinking about planetary um, sustainability and, and the planet existing at all. I'm not sure that answered your question. I feel like I went a little bit off topic there, but um, you know, there's a lot <laughs> to say. No, it's all good. And I appreciate all of the riffs and tangents because it's all connected and it helps us understand a bit deeper these very complicated matters. So yeah, I'm so appreciative of you, Brett. Thank you for your time today on this, this episode with us and for all of your work. It's really deep and important. And I think it will definitely shake some of those listening as it has me. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's, it's been really wonderful to be in conversation and it's made me feel more hopeful on what started out as a, as a very hard day and a hard morning. Um, mm. So thank you so much for, for being in, inviting me to be in conversation with you. Mm -hmm. Yay. Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today is by Jahawi Bertoli, Janavi Veronica, and Layla Mikala. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Ali Constantine, Erica Ekram, Emily Guerra, and Julia Jackson.